This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Others, um, but kudos to you for waking up early on a Saturday and being with us. Um, my name is Dina Evans, and uh, for the last few months I've served as a conference coordinator for the Stanford Center on Ethics. Um, although uh, I'm not a stranger to this place. Um, it's a pleasure to be up here with uh, Deborah Rohde, the director of, Center, of the Center on Ethics, as well as my old boss, uh, Ted Leland here, um, as well as with many of you here in the audience that I'm just really pleased that you've all made time to be here this weekend um, for what I hope will be a wonderful day of discussion, conversation, and um, really invigorating thoughts about Title IX. So I don't want to take up any more time as we're starting a couple minutes past here. But without further ado, I'd like to introduce Deborah Rohde, the director of the Center on Ethics and the E.W. McFarland Professor of Law here at Stanford. Thank you. On behalf of the Center on Ethics, it's an enormous honor and pleasure to add my voice to the welcomes. And first to all of you um, for caring enough to be here. Uh, second to our extraordinarily distinguished uh, panelists who made time and uh, already overcommitted schedules uh, to make this a priority, and most of all to the two individuals who made this event possible, uh, Dina Evans and Hashmet Yalorta. I'm going to pull out all the adjectives uh, later tonight, but I just can't let the morning pass without um, asking all of us once again to recognize uh, two people who it just couldn't be um, a more wonderful team with whom to work. So thank you to Dina and Hashmet, and if there are issues, come to me or come to them. The 35th anniversary of Title IX marks an appropriate moment for looking back while looking forward, for celebrating our progress while exploring our challenges. And certainly, we do have much to celebrate. Here's the good news. Um, since the statute's enactment, the number of female high school athletes has increased from about 290,000 to 2.9 million. Uh, women's participation in intercollegiate sports has soared from 16,000 to 180,000. And I want you to know that I'm one of those people who uh, is a witness to the changes, as are others speaking today, and certainly Ted Leland. When I went to school in the pre-Title IX era, what passed for physical education for girls in elementary school included ring toss, baton twirling, and hula hooping. My high school tennis team had no coach and no money, and the only athletic activity that had any status was cheerleading, of course. When I played on the Yale women's varsity tennis team in the early 1970s, we had no locker facilities, scholarship, or travel budget. Our coach was a local PE teacher who came to the matches with iced tea and cookies and said occasionally, good shot, and that was as good as it got. Around the same time here at Stanford, the now legendary women's tennis team practiced with cast-off balls from the men that Coach Dick Gould once described as not only used, but very used. Obviously, all this has changed, um, due not only to Title IX, but to broader changes in the status of women, which the statute reflected. Yet despite this impressive legacy, considerable frustration persists in how the statute has or has not been implemented. So here are some of the key challenges. 
Some complain that the pace of change has been too slow and that substantial gender disparities persist in participation rates and expenditures. Women, for example, account for over half of college students, but only 41% of athletes and 37% of program expenditures. Other uh, observers are unhappy that progress for women's sports seems to have come at the expense of men's. Over half of male college intercollegiate sports have seen a decline in teams since the 1980s, and that's often blamed, of course, on Title IX. A further problem that's received too little attention, and one on which I've recently done some research, involves women in coaching and athletic leadership. One ironic byproduct of Title IX is that as opportunities for female students have increased, opportunities for female professionals have declined. Only about 40% of women's teams have a female head coach, a, um, a figure uh, much lower to the 90% in 1972. And the number of male teams with a head coach remains at fewer than 2%, a figure unchanged since the 1980s. That leaves less than a fifth of all women's teams headed a uh, fifth of all college teams with a woman at the head. Women have also lost control of women's collegiate sports programs. Almost now have been merged with men's and less than a fifth of the top administrative jobs go to women. They account for fewer than one in 10 directors of athletics in division one schools. And as Dina Evans herself once put it, more women are entering the ranks of competitive athletics, but the professional finish line continues to elude them. Professor Carpenter is going to present a fuller statistical overview, and for the moment I just want to focus a little bit of attention on research I've conducted this past year to gain a better understanding of the challenges that remain, particularly in women's coaching and leadership opportunities. <coughs> I and a recent Stanford Law School graduate, Christopher Walker, conducted a survey of close to 500 coaches of women's teams, and our results will be published next year in the Stanford Civil Rights uh, Journal. But I wanted to just summarize a few key findings that help define the issue in today's symposium. <coughs> First of all, with respect to assessment of Title IX, um, most of the uh, participants were, as the country is as a whole, uh, quite positive about the overall effect that Title IX had in terms of increasing the number of female athletes. About four-fifths um, also thought the statute had had a major impact on the fair allocation of resources and interest in women's sports. However, only a little over half the sample and fewer women than men saw any positive impact for female coaches. <coughs> what are the reasons? Well, um, they were uh, asked to uh, elaborate on why the statute hadn't had a sufficiently favorable impact, and the responses fell into two clusters. Those that stressed Title IX's inability to secure equality for women and those that emphasized its adverse effect on men. Those concerned about equal opportunity for female athletes and coaches stressed, first, the inadequacy of oversight and enforcement, a subject which I know we'll be talking about later this afternoon. They faulted the lack of independent monitoring of data schools submitted and the absence of repercussions for noncompliance. According to one participant, reporting was a shell game and there were no checks or at, um, balances in the process. 
The insufficiency of penalties was another concern. Although in theory the statute permits a cutoff in federal funds for institutions that fail to secure gender equity, in practice this has never occurred, and college administrators and other surveys have estimated that as many as 80% of schools may be out of compliance. Uh, Professor Carpenter will talk a little bit more in detail, and um, Ted and I in the questions about uh, what uh, compliance requires here, but I think it's important to note its results. Many survey coaches identified persistent inequalities in program support and resources for women's teams, as well as widespread salary inequities. And national data reinforces that concern. Coaches of women's teams still only earn about half the salaries of men's teams, and equal pay protections fail to address these disparities because the jobs are seldom viewed as equal or similar. Men's teams generally have more resources, visibility, and revenue potential, and their coaches therefore have more responsibilities and therefore higher pay. And that, of course, points up a broader um, limitation with legal remedies, uh, well illustrated by this cartoon. Uh, the lawsuit could cost us a large fortune in legal fees, unless, of course, we hire women lawyers because their salary disparities are similar to those in coaching. My survey looked at all of the reported lawsuits brought by women coaches over the last eight years and found a very small number of litigated cases and only a handful in which the plaintiff coaches prevailed after trial. Women do somewhat better in informal settlements, particularly when the federal government's Office of Civil Rights brings enforcement action, so we shouldn't assume that Title IX is having no demonstrable impact. But the point, rather, is simply that it's costly psychologically and financially for coaches to bring formal discrimination claims. These suits are also quite hard to prove, and most coaches are unable or unwilling to afford the economic and reputational costs of legal proceedings. There are other problems in enforcement. A number of survey participants pointed to some perverse and unintended byproducts of Title IX. Uh, one is that athletic administrators, uh, uh, present company certainly uh, accepted, who pressured women's teams to accept more athletes than they had the staff and funds to accommodate in order to bring their gender ratios into closer parity. So, for example, one women's team was required to accept 12 members but was given travel money for only five. That obviously erodes morale and compromises performance. Another double-edged byproduct is the increased status, compensation, and professionalism of women's sports, which has also increased their attractiveness to male coaches. That fact, together with the decline in men's teams, has increased competition for positions coaching women's teams and edged out talented female athletes. The result is to deprive women students of role models and mentors who might encourage their pursuit of professional careers. The flip side of these concerns about women in sports is the effect on men, particularly those in non-revenue sports. Both male and female coaches were frustrated that increased opportunities for female athletes had seemed to come at the expense of more qualified and motivated male counterparts. As one coach put it, every year I have to turn talented men away because of roster limits while I scour the nation trying to find good female golfers. The reluctance to make meaningful reform to the quota system is destroying the men's teams. As a woman, I'm ashamed that my success has to come at the expense of male athletes that have trained hard throughout their life only to find that their collegiate opportunities keep getting smaller. 
Yet other survey participants challenged the perception that Title IX was at fault. From their vantage, the statute was a scapegoat, an excuse to drop programs instead of raising revenues or reining in football. The large budgets and team size that football required was, of course, then draining resources that could otherwise support male sports. Why don't you pick a fight with male football? Well, um, that's a conversation I think we'll have this afternoon. Let me turn also to the other main area that the survey looked at, um, the underrepresentation of women in coaching and athletic leadership more generally, as my statistics earlier indicated. We asked participants what they thought explained this fact. 90% of administrators thought that one major explanation was male athletes preferring male coaches, and two-thirds thought that these athletes wouldn't accept women coaches. And as long as male sports command more respect, uh, support, and revenue from many of those in collegiate athletics, male coaches are going to have a leg up in competing for top administrative positions as well. Some survey participants also believe that women just weren't as interested in those positions or in full-time coaching, either because they were less competitive than men or less willing to put in the necessary long hours. Many uh, respondents noted that coaching was a family-unfriendly occupation. Not only did it require expensive time and travel, but its unrelenting and inconvenient schedules on weekends, afternoons, and sometimes evenings meshed poorly with child-rearing demands. And as survey participants noted, women were just less likely than men to have sufficient support from spouses for these jobs that never end, as one put it. Mothers, but not fathers, were expected to put family first. And these work-family conflicts, I think, go away to explain the demographics of college coaching. A national study based on census data found that individuals who identified themselves as full-time coaches, about two-thirds of the men, but only th a third of the women were married, and 40% of the men, but less than 18% of the women had children. So talented female uh, athletes who want families opt out of the coaching profession, and that, of course, uh, reduces the constituency most interested in seeing it change. We haven't reached the point where we have someone uh, willing, um, I think in too many uh, athletic families, dual career couples, um, who wants to make something of the traditional gender roles. Even so, the most frequent explanation that survey participants offered for women's underrepresentation in athletic coaching and leadership was not lack of time or interest, but gender bias. Old boys club was how a large number of coaches described their work atmosphere, and of course, the Nat Augusta National Golf Club and the protests that it triggered, it's still all male membership, is a good indication of some of the attitudes that still prevail. In many survey participants' view, uh, men dominate athletic leadership and men hire men. Not enough women were in leadership positions to do the same. Some participants also pointed out that most university presidents and major athletic donors were men and they too generally preferred male athletic directors. Female candidates um, were frequently channeled into senior women administrator positions that were often dismissed as tokenism or lacking in real influence. Many survey participants also identified gender stereotypes uh, that compromise uh, commitment, the, the assumptions about the compromise and commitment of uh, women. 
And uh, those adverse assumptions uh, are coming through clearly in other leadership surveys, the notion that women have to be twice as hardworking or twice as successful as men to gain equivalent respect. And in athletic, as in other leadership contexts, women still su suffer from that double standard and double bind. Uh, too assertive, not assertive enough. What is forceful in a man is abrasive in a woman. Job applicants who might become mothers uh, suffered from stigma because, as one participant put it, those doing the hiring don't want to go through the search process multiple times in a few years to replace those who leave for family reasons. And finally, there is, of course, uh, sexual orientation bias. As one participant put it, the pink elephant in the room has kept some women in the closet and blocked opportunities for others. One coach underscored the cost, as she said, there's no freedom for people to be who they really are still um, in many athletic contexts. So where do we go from here? We asked um, the survey participants about strategies for change in a number of possible reforms. Uh, proposals uh, emerge and other reported research uh, conveys some of the same messages which hopefully we'll explore throughout today's symposium. One of the most common suggestions, greater professional development opportunities for women, and many in this room have been responsible for some of the best. Uh, some survey participants advocated coaching certification programs like those that have fostered gender equity in soccer. Others wanted to see more formal mentoring programs and support for women's participation in uh, special wor workshops. There's also obviously a great need for more work family initiatives, flexible schedules, uh, reduced um, time commitments, childcare assistance. And most women's rights experts emphasize greater accountability among senior administrators for gender equity. Institutions get what they measure and what they reward, so they need to conduct more surveys, monitor outcomes, and make progress on gender equity part of standard performance evaluations. Finally, the most controversial recommendation involved increased program support for women's teams. The consensus, not surprisingly, among our survey participants was that schools should equalize up. That is, they should support greater women's participation through increased resources, not through cuts in male programs. But where those increases can come from is by no means self-evident. The vast majority of higher educational institutions face stable or declining resources and escalating demands. Athletics has to compete with other pressing needs, student financial aid, healthcare, information technology, and so forth. Reducing football expenditures is one option, but this isn't a solution in the 40% of NCAA schools that don't have football teams nor is it clear how many individual schools can afford to do this without jeopardizing relations with alums, students, state funders, and the community generally. What that suggests is a need for collective solutions, ways to curtail the arms race in expenditures on certain men's sports that's jeopardizing non-revenue male sports and undermining gender equity. And finally, I think we also need to rethink what women want to be equal to. Is it the model provided by an increasingly competitive and commercial male sporting culture? There is, to be sure, much to dislike in the early history of women's athletics when participants were cautioned not to become unsexed Amazons or to acquire an indelicate sweat. 
But there was also a positive side of the emphasis on participation, health, and teamwork captured in the adage, a girl for every sport and a sport for every girl. How to preserve those positive aspects of women's sports is a challenge that deserves greater attention. It's not a modest agenda, but neither does it exceed our grasp. Certainly in the pace of the last 60 years, we've transformed the athletic landscape, and the challenge now is to make good on the promise of equal opportunity that Title IX embodies. And there's no one uh, better, I think, uh, to do that than uh, the person who succeeds me here, um, Ted Leland. Uh, as many of you know, um, Ted, uh, and where is my little bio? You're going to have to read along with, with me up here. Uh, is, here we go. Didn't want to make you do that, Ted. The, uh, currently Vice President for University Advancement at the University of the Pacific. From 1991 to 2005, as I'm sure all know here, he served as the fabulous director of athletics at Stanford. Under his leadership, and I could go on about this, but I'll just um, recap briefly, Stanford won 50 national team championships, the most under a single athletic director in the history of intercollegiate athletics. He was awarded 11 co um, consecutive director's cups, presented by the National Association of Collegiate Directors of Athletics, and he brought us to the best overall uh, program in the country. In 2000, NACD named him as the Athletic Director of the Year, and he's been named one of the 10 most influential persons in college athletics by the Sports Business Journal. He also, um, in large measure, because of his uh, visible uh, and, at the time, certainly exceptional commitment to Title IX, was made co-chair of a national commission appointed by the U.S. Secretary of Education charged with examining Title IX in 2002 and 2003, and it's those experiences I think he plans to share with us now. Thank you so much, Ted. All right. And let me see if I can bring that out. Thank you. It's, it, it, it's great to be here, and I, I want to start off by saying it's, it's wonderful to see so many friends now. Uh, Dina introduced me as her old athletic director, and uh, I would like to say hello to a lot of my longtime friends. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, Donna Lopiano and I, I don't, she probably won't even remember this, when I was associate athletic director at the University of Houston in 1978, and she was director of athletics for women at the University of Texas, Austin, co-hosted uh, one of the first national forums, uh, it was really a regional forum under the old AIAW in Houston, Texas in 1978 when the government was just trying to struggle with how they were going to uh, formulate the administrative regulations uh, um, for Title IX. So uh, um, we've been, I've been at this for some time. I want to say greetings from uh, Stockton, California. If you don't know, that's a little town uh, 90 miles uh, directly east of here in the middle of the farm country. When I left uh, Stanford, after 15 years, the band decided that they would sort of roast me at halftime, and uh, uh, which they did. And one of the things they said was that uh, uh, I wasn't leaving St Stanford of my own free will, that I had been kidnapped and put in the witness protection program in Stockton because nobody could find him there. Um, so uh, um, we're also hosting an, uh, our big festival of the year that today, this weekend in Stockton, the Asparagus Festival. Now, that, you can either take that one of two ways, okay? 
Either it's so boring in Stockton they have to have an asparagus festival or, man, can those guys have a party about anything. Um, so you can sort of look at it either way. Um, I think there's a great lineup here today. I, I, I'm really uh, uh, pleased to, to be part of it, and I think that uh, I hope they get a chance to talk about it. But uh, um, both uh, Vivian and, and, and Linda Jean Carpenter, Vivian Acosta, have, have written one of the great books on Title IX. Uh, um, Welsh Suggs has written a wonderful book that's, that's very balanced. And Val Benetti, I don't know if you'll get a chance to hear from her, but if anybody calls me up and says, you know, how can we make sure that we're complying with Title IX, I refer her them to Val Benetti's uh, wonderful book on Title IX. So we, you, I think you, you, we've got the right people in the room here today. Um, I think I rise before you more as a, not as a scholar necessarily, but sort of as a practitioner, uh, a person uh, who's watched this thing uh, over the last uh, uh, 35 years. And I, I think I'll try to be a little bit provocative. Um, I'm, I was told one time that if you don't have anything to say, don't say anything. So I think it's, I don't want to waste your time. So I'll try to get into some of my thoughts which uh, uh, maybe won't be all that accepted by everybody, but I think it's important that we at least started off uh, that way with, with some of the issues. When I came to Stanford in 1978 to work on my uh, PhD and uh, coach football, I was really thrilled. I was a service brat. My family had moved all over the place, but I had really grown up in Hayward, California, across the bay. And coming to Stanford for me was a dream come true. And, and why? Because I was a sports nut. I was a jock. And uh, I, had a, I had a lot of heroes, uh, and a lot of my heroes were from here. Bob Mathias, John Brody, Hank Lucetti, the great Chuck Taylor, Tom Watson, Jim Plunkett, Gene Washington. I could go on and on, but a lot of heroes from this place. I'm really proud of all the accomplishments we uh, uh, were able to achieve, and we as a team here when I was at Stanford, I, I used to have a bromide, and my staff would get sick of it. I would say to them, you know, if we're good at our jobs, we'll accomplish this. You know, we'll build this building, we'll win this champ. We're good at our jobs. And I saw the opportunity, I thought we should say, when we're good at our jobs. Well, I, one, one thing I, I failed myself on when I was here, and that's the, the ability to keep Dina Day Evans in coaching. Uh, she's our host today, but I, I want you to know, she's, she was also, by the way, one of the few Stanford athletes that was a little bit like me. She would play basketball at lunch and soccer team and then run in the morning. I mean, she played a whole bunch of different sports and just absolutely loved it. We were able to talk her into coaching, and then she became the head coach of our women's cross-country team and then became one of the first coaches in the history of the NCAA to, uh, uh, to win a national championship in her first year and also became the second woman African-American to win an NCAA national championship. And then with my great leadership, she ended up quitting coaching. So uh, um, I never felt very good about that. Uh, I, I, I want to say that I'm very proud of uh, the, the growth in the women's program uh, that uh, Stanford has supported uh, during the last 15 years. We've added seven varsity teams. We've gone from 22 women athletes to over 400, or excuse me, 220 women athletes to over 400 women athletes. We've taken the financial aid ratio of 22% of the women, 22% of the scholarship aid going to women to about 48 or 47% what it is now. We've made a, a lot, we've never had to cap men's rosters, never had to cut men's teams to do that. And uh, sure, I mean, that's easy to say because we had the resources to do it. And, and the reality is we did. I tongue-in-cheek gave a talk one time to the California chapter of the National Organization for Women about our wonderful women's program. And I entitled it, Maybe Only the Rich Can Be Moral. Because um, I think a lot of people wanted to support Title IX. But what I'm really happy about more than anything else and this continues today under Bob Bowlesby's leadership, is that we supported women's programs for the right reason. Not because we were forced to by the law, 
but because we were alerted by the law and then come to, came to realize that educationally this was absolutely the right thing to do. I think that uh, um, we never wanted a female athlete here to feel that this university supported her efforts, her dreams, because of a law. We wanted her to feel that she was supported because the university supported her in her dreams. Um, and I think we did, a, we did a pretty good job. And in fact, you know, only the rich can be moral. Maybe that's the reason why we had so much financial support here for our women's program. You can think of it, and I'm a fundraiser. You know, you go out and try to raise money for women's scholarships, and you say, we'd like, to raise, we'd like you to give to women's scholarships. Why are you doing this? It's because the law forces us to. Pretty tough fundraising. Go out there and you say, you know what? We're committed to giving women equal opportunity in all areas of life at Stanford, and we need you to help, and people stood up and supported us. Uh, first with our Cardinal Club, which is a very effective fundraising, and then we combined that with a Buck Cardinal Club, and now we have a significant number of our women's scholarships endowed here. And I think that's because uh, the university, well before I came here, said this is the right thing to do. We're not being forced by the law. I think the second thing I want to sort of say generally is, is that um, you know political scientists always have argued that kind of the the, the culture and the values of the community change, and eventually that's reflected in the judicial and executive and legislative branches of our government. And I think Title IX is a wonderful example of doing it the other way. I've lived through this whole thing, and I can tell you when it first was decided in 1972 and then word started leaking out that women were going to get equal opportunities in athletics, it was hard for us to understand. It was hard for us to believe that women belonged in the training room, that they belonged in the sidelines, that they belonged in the field. It was just hard. There was sort of a macho nature of athletics at the time. And, and people uh, uh, were, were sort of slow to come along. And there's, there, I don't think there's any villains in this case, but there's a lot of people that just didn't understand that women should have equal opportunity. You know, the good news is the government sort of forced us to look at this as a community. And, and, and we looked at it, and you know what? We said, this is good. Um, uh, overwhelming uh, positive support for equal opportunity for women, but it's gone the other way. I mean, it's, it's not the way political scientists normally argue that change comes about in our society. The, the third thing I want to say is, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate how much we've all benefited from the presence of what Gail Gillingham called years ago the women's voice in college athletics. Women's full participation in the athletic world will only continue to make us stronger and better than before. You see, I think women have brought a different focus. The AIAW had a different focus than the NCAA. Less business and more education, less competition, more cooperation, less coach-centered and more student-centered. And, and Vivian, again, and Linda Jean in their book called for a similar model of female sports, and Myra Burton Nelson, one of our graduates here at this university in her book, Are We Winning Yet? How Women Are Changing the Focus of Sports and Are Changing Women, postulated that women's influence in sport can, make, can help men. This has clearly been my experience. Male and female athletes, male and female coaches, and male and female administrators working together, striving together, have changed the culture Sport is always about competition, but now it's also about cooperation. Sport is always about sort of macho team bonding, but it's also about mutual respect. Sport's always been about great triumphs, but it can also be about sharing our excellences. And sports is, is about growing up the hard way, but it can also be 
about lending a hand to others along the journey. So the milieu of college athletics has benefited from the role that women have taken. Not as big a role as we'd like, a lot of work to be done, but there's been significant changes. I want to make a few comments now sort of on the commission that I had the privilege of chairing. And first of all, this is sort of a Leland family story. My daughter at the time, I got, so I get called by Condoleezza Rice, she says, because she was my boss here, would you be willing to do this? Okay. And then all of a sudden I was chairman of it, and I thought, gee, Mani, what, am I, what have I signed up for here? Matter of fact, I talked to one Stanford professor who had chaired a, a federal commission, and I said to him, how, does, uh, how, how do you do this? And I explained to him the commission and what it was about and sort of a 30-year survey of how Title IX is serving the American people. And he described it. He said, well, I've, I've heard of a rat getting off a sinking ship, but you're the first one I've ever seen swim to a sinking ship. You know, you actually volunteered for this. Um, but when I got asked to chair the commission, I was sort of, you know, of course I was proud. Uh, uh, you know, you want to, want to serve the community, you want to serve the government when asked. And uh, um, I called my wife and said, I've been asked to do this. My wife called my daughter. My daughter was a scholarship athlete at the University of Kansas at the time and was part of their student athlete advisory committee. So my wife goes on to tell my daughter, oh, this is great. You know, Dr. Rice called, Ted's doing this and this, and your dad, you know, your dad this, your dad this, and aren't, aren't you really proud? And there was a silence, as my wife uh, uh, says it, there was a silence on, on the other end, and my daughter said, tell dad we're watching. Um, <laughs> so I knew I was in for it even in my own home. Uh, I thought there was really sort of in a global sense two big questions that were asked of our commission uh, that to, to survey Title IX. Uh, one was, how has Title IX served the American people? How has Title IX, after 30 years, now 35, but at that time 30, served the American people? And I, I, I think it's great. It's been great. Uh, it's very popular. It's one of the most popular civil rights laws in the country. Uh, the, I, and I think I would put it this way, is that people support equal opportunity for women, irregardless of the law, but they also support the law itself. I'll get to that more in a second. And I would say it this way, the war for the hearts and minds of the American people regarding equal opportunity for women has been won. It's over. We've got a lot of work to do. And, and, and we're not, we haven't won everybody over. But, but in my opinion, after listening, we had, I think, 300 witnesses, and there was only one of the 300 that said title didn't believe in equal opportunity for women. All, everyone stood up and said, I, I believe in equal opportunity. Let me tell you why this, is, this law has been great. Or I believe in equal opportunity, but let me tell you how we could fix this law and make it better for people. But that's what we heard from the American public. The second question we had is, is there a better way to administer the law with a special focus on the 1979 HEW interpretation? The old three-part test and the three-prong test for the first part. That whole thing that, that hopefully um, uh, people that are more expert than I will, will talk about. It. And I think the answer is that, you know, probably not. I think the one thing our commission did is we, I don't see the government undertaking a wholesale uh, uh, re-evaluation of those 79 regulations. We looked at them. I think there's a lot of concern about what, using a baseball metaphor on the corners of the plate, there was a lot of concern about how we could do it better. Uh, maybe we could change this, and I've got even some suggestions there. But at the time we had the com commission, the question was, has, are these HEW regulations, the old ones that are now done by the Office of Civil Rights Department of uh, Education, um, are, are, you know, how, how are they? And we, I think we sort of said, you know what, that's about as good as we're going to get. That's going to be the template for, for how, we, how we move forward. The, uh, um, a couple comments on, uh, on the process, it, which was far from perfect. 
Um, first of all, we had too little time, uh, and I don't know how to, you know, I don't know how to how to blame that. Maybe it was my my fault as chair. Uh, maybe it was the government's fault to sort of stepped on what what you might consider a proverbial landmine. So would you, we're going to we're going to take on the third rail here, and we're going to step out, and we're going to talk about the future of Title IX and the political, uh, the heat of the political argument, I think, pushed the government. When we asked for more time, they said, we can't be out there in the court of public opinion any longer. People actually think that we're going to try to end Title IX. You've got to end your commission. So we get ourselves off the front pages. So in a way, those that were, that were concerned about the sort of the total existence of the commission and attacked it were also the ones that were concerned we didn't take enough time. And, and I, but I think we were sort of victims of, of the political environment that way. I think that we really lost an opportunity because we focused too much on Division I of the NCAA and we neglected Division II, Division III, the junior colleges and the high schools. And I think there was some real work to be done in those areas and we just didn't have the time and we quite frankly didn't have the commission makeup. Uh, to take on uh, uh, on on that issue, so I, I think that we're in in you know eligible for some criticism. I, t I thought I titled the next time the next part of this uh, the, if, if I were king section. Um, I like to think I am king occasionally, but uh, um, if I were king, uh, you know what would I do after all these years as a practitioner? First, we got to quit making a villain of football. Um, the reality is. There's overexpense. There's opulent lifestyle in football. I understand that, and I think myself and Bob Bowlesby here, we, that nobody's been more outspoken on a national scene to try to temper down the overexpenditures and the opulent lifestyle in the sport of football. Yet at the same time, the BCS schools, the Bowl Championship Series schools, offer more aid for women, they offer more opportunities for women, and they produce the best women's teams. And that's a simple fact. I would say it this way, the female athletes vote with their feet. And they vote for BCS schools. Now, is that because they have better resources, more scholars? I don't know. But I'll tell you what, when you go to a national championship, uh, you're probably going to square off if you're at Stanford with another BCS school. It's just that simple. You know, we have an exception here on the West Coast with the great women's soccer league. Uh, uh, that the, we used to call the WCC. I don't know if they change their name occasionally. Um, and I've, I've got some other ideas. I've been, I've been told I've got to move along, so I will, I will do that. It has certainly been a, a great trip. Uh, Title IX has done much for our country, our institutions, and countless athletes, male and female. Um, but but I've benefited more than anybody else. Uh, it's been really uh, the people I've met, the things I've seen, the changes I've seen, what, what a thrill it's been uh, to be part of this. Uh, for so many years. I, I have, no one I don't think has benefited as much from Title IX as the guy that's right in front of you now. Um, I do think that, you know, I started off when I came in 79 with a set of heroes. Uh, I've got a new set, Summer Sanders, Tiger Woods, Christy Gaines, Jenny Thompson, Kim and Bev Oden, Gabriella Rose, Tommy Vardell, Debbie Thomas, Jair Lynch, Kerry Walsh, uh, Amber Lou, Candace Wiggins, I, I could go on and on. The difference, we now have male and female heroes, and, we, and that's due to Title IX. We've all benefited from it. I, I, I want to thank you for your uh, um, listening to me, and uh, it's a pleasure to be back on campus for the first time in months. Thank you. So I
I wanted to just leave a few minutes for questions before we go into our next presentation, and the floor is open. Well, you know, good, over there. Yes, as it happens, there's a list here. Oh. <laughs> I got to find if I were king section. Yeah, she asked it if, uh, um, and I'll try to find it in my rather extensive notes here. Here, here, here you go. My well-organized notes. Um, yeah, if I were king, I think there's the first thing there's about. I, I think I would, uh, um, two other things I'd like to mention. One, one is eliminate the EADA report. I mean, we found out in our commission hearings that nobody pays attention to that. And I don't think that's true for participation ratios. I think those are pretty easily defined. And I think it's not, it's not true for scholarship limitations. But if you talk to the people and you look at the government, um, all, the, all the garbage that we throw into the AD report is garbage out. So whenever I'm looking at different kinds of studies and somebody says we looked on the salary compensation or some in EAD reports, I just say, well, that's, that's unreliable information because we did so many interviews with people that fill those things out and we found out that the government doesn't check them. The government hires an outside organization that puts them up on a website and that's the extent of it. And we ask them, don't you, don't you look into that? You know, the question's no, they don't. The second thing I would say is I'd love to have some intermediate, uh, that's not the right word, Tom's back here. Tom Fenner, one of the university attorneys. I, I'm always afraid when Tom shows up when I speak because I'm afraid I'm going to do something <laughs> wrong. But, uh, um, they, I, 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 yeah, and I would call them intermediate sanctions, which is truly another law, and I don't want to confuse it. But the, one of the problems we have with, is, the, is this, the Department of Education, Office of Civil Rights, has one, one penalty. Removal of financial aid from every part of the university. Well, that's the, that's the atom bomb. That's like having a, a nuclear arsenal, and you, but you have no, no on-the-ground on forces. You can't fight a war. We're not, even, if the Stanford Athletics is six percentage points out of balance in compliance with uh, um, uh, Title IX, let's say it's six percentage points down, and, and, and we're concerned about that, and people want to take some kind of action. They want the government to move. The government's option is to withdraw financial aid all federally. That means the medical school closes down. And so what it is, it's the atomic bomb. Nobody's, nobody's going to drop the atomic bomb, so it becomes sort of a straw man. There is, in effect, no penalties. No penalties have been levied. I, I'd love to see some sort of, you know, penalty, staggered penalties where the government could come in and, and get you. And uh, let me, I'll, Donna's going to probably correct me because I'm probably wrong on that one. Um, the, uh, uh, the other thing I'd like to see is, is I, I don't, I, I, I'd like to see a way around counting participants, and I'd like to find a way to count participation opportunities. Uh, now, I've, I've tried to explain this about six times to different people, and they've gotten a blank look like, Ted, you're crazy, every single time. But let me try one more time this. Um, and, and, and that would be assist, right now what we do to meet participation ratios is, is, is we actually count the number of kids on the squad list the first day of competition. And, and quite frankly, there's, that's rife with mischief. All kinds of ways around that. And, and I'm not sure if you're the 70th woman on the rowing team, you're really getting an intercollegiate experience as we would know it. Uh, and, and, and I think there's other, other ways you can, you, you can sort of manipulate. I'd like to see a system that counts opportunities. So you could say to yourself, a rowing team, let's say the average number of women on a rowing team nationally is 35. If you offer women's rowing, you get 35 uh, uh, opportunities counted. If you keep 60 on the team, that's fine. If you keep 12 on the team, that's fine. You count your 35. 
And uh, um, I'd, I'd like to see a system like that because I found that coaches need that kind of flexibility. Some coaches like to have large squads. Some coaches like to have small squads. To give you an example here, we had 13 scholarships for men's basketball. And we always had 15 men's basketball players. And for years, we had 15 scholarships for women, and we always had 10 or 11 women on the team. You know, and you thought to yourself, well, wait, that, does that, I mean, that really is, is, could cause you a problem if you're really worried about your ratios. Yet at the same time, we thought we were offering at least equal opportunity for those. This is one of the few civil rights statutes that counts participation versus opportunities. Most of the time, you're required to meet opportunity. This one sort of requires, at least in the first prong of the three-prong test, uh, that you meet, uh, the, the, the actually have people head counts. So those, are, those would be the three things I'd look at. And again, I've, I've thrown this out in the court of public opinion, and it's been volleyed back at me every time. So I don't, I don't yes, Donna. No, no, I, I, well, let me put it this way. It, I, I think it's more of a matter of confusion. I mean, I, again, I've had somebody in my office filling out one of these things, and, and I would bring them in, and I would say, why does last year's compare to this year? And they say, well, this year we counted all of this, and last year we did it this way, and so the numbers are significantly different. Anybody that's worked in college athletics that's tried to compare one budget to another, like take Art, well, there's Sandy, Cal versus Stanford, and try to compare our costs, it's almost impossible. I mean, matter of fact, every committee I've been on the NCAA has given up. Now, the NCAA presidents have come back out and they say they're gonna, they've got some kind of way they're going to try and compare. But I think comparing budgets across schools is very difficult because of the different ways that we budget and the different ways people fill out the form. So I don't think anybody's purposely lying. It's, the data is inaccurate in my opinion. Yeah, but, there's no, but the guidelines are very fuzzy and nobody checks. You know, I think that's an interesting, I don't know if you heard what she said, but she said sort of like if, I'll paraphrase, if the, if the government can't come up with some kind of intermediate set of sanctions, if the NCAA is willing to step in through their certification process and have a set of what we might call intermediate sanctions or penalties, would I be, I think that'd be something very interesting to, uh, uh, to talk about. Now, I'm on the NCAA infractions committee, so I'm very well aware of the uh, flaws in, in that system, so I don't think we'd be entering a perfect system uh, uh, if we said let's rely on the NCAA to, uh, uh, to uh, manage these infractions. But I'd like to see something that says a school's not quite, is not where we want, and, and so we're not going to close down their medical school, but we are going to impose some kind of sanctions or th the threat of some kinds of sanctions. Right now, the uh, threat of removing all federal aid from this campus is an empty threat. It's politically and impossible for anyone to do that right now. It just, it just probably wouldn't happen. Um, and I'd love to see some way to, to, to incentivize people. So those are great questions. Yes?
Oh, I understand. Did everybody hear the question? Okay. Yeah, I think I think you've ta you've extrapolated my argument to an area I'm, I'm not I'm not really ready to defend. I understood when I became chairman of the commission uh, uh, to review Title IX. I understood I was I was appointed by a Republican administration, and I understood that the Republicans had sued to de have de Title IX declared unconstitutional under the Reagan administration. So I knew that there was some justifiable skepticism. Uh, um, uh, on people, especially women's advocacy groups. So I never, I never thought that that was uh, uh, an issue for me uh, in terms of, yes. Well, no, I'm responding to your comment. I'm directing at that. All right, I, I'm telling you what my experience, I, I, I mean, you, you've probably got your own political history and that's great, but, but my political history is one that I was appointed by a Republican administration and set into a, a, a milieu where people were very concerned and skeptical about what's the hidden agenda. And I was asked many times, what's the Republican hidden agenda? You, there must be some kind of an agenda here. And I think I speak on behalf of Bob Bowlesby and the other commissioners. We didn't feel we were given an agenda when we were asked to do that, but we understood that especially advocacy groups were going to be very skeptical of, of sort of the purposes. Is there a hidden agenda? Was there a hidden agenda? Um, and there may have been one. I, they never told me about it. Uh, and uh, um, so that, that's sort of where I'm, 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 I'm coming out on the thing. So I, I don't know if, uh, um, uh, if, if uh, I, I think the women's advocacy groups, I'm talking globally now, have done a great job of supporting Title IX. I don't think there's any question. I think they have pushed some legislators uh, uh, to uh, uh, advocate their position. Birch by some other people have been just as involved, I think, as this as some of the women's advocacy groups. Maybe, maybe they were motivated by the women's advocacy groups, but they were part of that. Yes? One, one more, and then Ted will uh, continue to take questions after the next presentation, but let's um, just close out this piece of it with one last question. Yes. No, I, I, I suggested it, advocated it, and I got just as blank a looks as I'm getting from you guys. Uh, it's one of those things my mom told me one time, you know, Ted, if everybody's out of step but you, you know, maybe you're out of step. Um, the, uh, I have a feeling that this is an idea whose time hasn't come yet, but uh, um, I, I think just in the departments I've run, you know, been, been responsible for, we, when we did our reviews of equal opportunity for women, we looked at participation opportunities. So the fact that Tara liked to keep 10 or 11 or 12 kids on the team and Mike Montgomery kept 15 wasn't a, a civil rights issue in our opinion. So we looked, when we added up our 
numbers every year. Uh, we looked at, I did this little math. I said, okay, we start a women's lacrosse team. What's the average number of women? 22, let's count that. The coach keeps 30, the coach keeps 21, not a civil rights issue. That's an issue for that coach. And that, I thought that was a better way to manage a department as big as ours. And I, I think that, uh, um, that's what I, so that's what I did in turn. It worked for us here. I'm not sure it would work everywhere, you know. And, so, so we'll come back to that as a possibility, but do let me now introduce Linda Jean Carpenter. Professor Carpenter has been involved in Title IX and gender equity issues in sports for over three decades. She's authored or co-authored nine books, has published about 40 articles, has presented at 130 national, regional, and local conferences, and no doubt will consider this one of the capstones of her experience. She is a professor at Brooklyn College of the City University of New York. She's won uh, too many awards for me to uh, elaborate all of them. You have her full bio in your program, or actually an excerpted bio. But let me mention just the honor award from the National Association of Collegiate Women Athletic Administrators. Fittingly enough, the Billie Jean King Award, the American Bar Association Outstanding Nonprofit Lawyers Award, uh, the honor award and two presidential awards from the National Association for Girls and Women in Sport, and the Distinguished Scholar Award from the School and Community and Safety Society of America. Uh, she has uh, been the person most responsible for um, getting the good data um, out there to a wide audience and Many gender equity uh, advocates have relied on her work for over the last three decades. I among them, and it's nice to have an opportunity to say how important that work has been. So, Linda Jean Carpenter, thank you for joining. Let me be invisible for a second here while I try and do the PowerPoint, get it started. Hey, it worked. <laughs> That's always a pleasure when the first slide comes up. <laughs> uh, most PowerPoint presentations function by the first sentence out of somebody's mouth. Is there a tech person in the audience? <laughs> so I'm glad that this came up. Now, um, Vivian was going to be here today, and she sends her greetings. She had a death in the family, and she um, is sorry to not be with you. So I will be her and me as well. Now, when I scoot down about a foot, I'm being Vivian, and when I stand up straight, I'm being me. Um, anyhow, we have a task today. Um, it's sort of a three-part task. The first is to give you um, a starter kit about Title IX from the legal perspective. We've started running with the first two presentations, and my job is sort of to make sure that we all have a base of understanding so that when we um, move forward, we know universally what we're talking about. And the second is to give you a little more snapshot of the status of women in intercollegiate athletics over this 29-year period that our data covers. And the third is to talk a little bit about tomorrow, the future. Is it loud enough? A little bit more? It's fine. Okay. I can use my gym voice, too. Well, let me know if it's too soft. So shall we begin? Uh, let me put this down here. Do that. In the beginning, there was the law, and the law was good. 
but the law's 37 words was not enough. Um, but it gave us a start anyhow. There are three elements that are required to have Title IX jurisdiction, and they're hiding in there, but they're easier to see if they're highlighted. Title IX only covers sex discrimination. It doesn't cover race or age or anything else. And in education programs and those that receive federal financial dollars. Ted was talking about um, removing federal dollars from campus, and, and that's really where the teeth come for Title IX. But the law itself was not enough. And so over the years, things had to be added. Um, in addition to the law are the regulations that Ted also alluded to. And when a law is passed, it's the legislative branch which has that function. Congress did its job back in 1972. The executive branch is the branch of government that has the job of enforcement. You remember all this from your civics classes, I'm sure. Okay, so if the, federal, the executive branch um, enforces Title IX, it started off in HEW, now it's the Department of Education, and within that, the Office for Civil Rights um, is the, the group that, um, that has the task of administratively enforcing Title IX. They also need to de develop regulations because 37 words don't tell you how to measure what's really expected. The regulations received about 10,000 comments, a lot of time, thought, arguing, pushing, shoving. Um, and once they were um, accepted by Congress, they ended up with a force of law. But the law and the regulations were not enough. In the area of athletics, we chose either to be confused or to not understand. And when that happens, the executive branch enforcement, known as the, civil, at the Office for Civil Rights, has the task of developing policy interpretations. These are not intended to change the law. They are simply to explain the law and to provide a yardstick to measure compliance with the law. Now, the law, the regulations, and the policy interpretations were not enough. So, the OCR has one more chance at this, and that's to create letters of clarification. By their title, they tell you that they are intended to clarify. It's like a teacher using different words to tell you the same concept. Although every now and then, teachers use the same words, they just say them louder. Um, but in this case, they use different words to um, accentuate the, com the uh, concept. Ted alluded to the fact that the proportionality of the three-part test, which we'll talk about in a moment, first appeared in the policy interpretations, which is one of the reasons that there were a lot of lawsuits about the three-part test, because it didn't first appear in the regulations. So the knowledge of the difference between regulations and policy interpretations becomes important for you. But there's more. Um, there's also, that one's too soon, go back. Um, there are also things like the, um, the investigator's manual that Val with um, a colleague developed. It was intended to help the OCR investigators 
know what to look for and how to evaluate things when they got on campus. Does not have the same force uh, as the things up on the screen. The law and the regulations, remember, both have the force of law. The policy interpretations are given deference by the courts. But the investigator's manual gave some, um, some good direction, anyhow. Um, let's take a look for a minute at the enforcement mechanisms. Now that you understand where the law comes from, let's take a look at some enforcement mechanisms. And there are three of them. The first is an in-house complaint. Stanford has, I hope, a Title IX designated officer. It's required under the law. If you go back to your home, own home campuses, those of you that are not from Stanford, and inquire who your Title IX officer is, you'll get a very interesting reaction most times, which is usually, why do you want to know? Um, and often you'll find that that person retired 10 years ago or died or was uh, indicted. <laughs> uh, one way or another, no longer has that responsibility because it's a person who often has that in their portfolio along with an awful lot of other, other tasks. And because of that, they are not likely to be positive, um, of positive value in enforcing Title IX. They usually work at the pleasure of the president. And finding discrimination um, is not something that usually pleases the president of the institution. Um, I don't know of anybody that's used an in-house complaint successfully, but I'm sure there are some around. The next is the OCR complaint, and that does not require legal standing. The person who files it does not need to um, have something to gain or lose by the outcome. But the outcome is limited. OCR, as Ted alluded to, can only remove federal funds from campus, and that's a limited outcome. The lawsuit does require someone with legal standing. So your signature, if you're the, the plaintiff, has to be on the complaint. So everybody knows that you're the bad guy on campus. The OCR complaints don't have that requirement. So those are the three things. Let's take a look at which, one, which ones have the teeth. The in-house complaint doesn't have teeth. The OCR complaint has teeth, but they have never been used. There has never been a dollar, a federal dollar removed from campus because of a Title IX complaint. And most campuses know that. And if that is the direction of the complaint, the strategy is to simply drag your feet until the very last moment and then say, oops, we're sorry. We promise to go forth and sin no more. Hoping that in the interim, the student, if it was the student that brought it, has graduated and no longer cares and isn't watching anymore or the staff member that brought it has um, resigned or moved elsewhere. The lawsuit is the only one with real teeth. Costs some money. Um, They're not cheap uh, simply because you have to do more than send a 37 cent, oops, 39 cent. In another week, 41 cent <laughs> letter <laughs> alleging those three areas of required elements. But the lawsuit carries with it the possibility of um, both compensatory and punitive damages. Does anybody remember the lawsuit that told us that? Um, that one um, was for employees. Beyond that, that gave private right of action to employees. But punitive and compensatory damages. Where were you in 1992? 
Anybody? Oh, come on. All right, well, Franklin V. Grinnett. Okay, very good. And that was sort of a surprise to everybody. It was a unanimous Supreme Court decision. It was, the, it was based on sexual harassment, and it was the first sexual harassment case that the court had looked at since Clarence Thomas joined the court, um, which made all things kind of interesting. Uh, but it was a surprise, but a very happy surprise. Now let's take a quick tour through the three-part test, and I'm going to do it in reverse order of the way they're usually um, dealt with. One of the requirements of Title IX is that you provide participation opportunities that are equitable. And the yardstick to measure that has three parts. All you have to do is meet one of those three parts. One of them is interest and abilities. So if you have unmet interest and abilities on the part of um, the sex that's underrepresented, in most cases that's the women, um, then you cannot use that as a way of proving that you have met the requirement to participate, to provide equal participation. Now recently, a couple years ago, OCR um, issued what they called a letter of clarification, but remember letters of clarification are not changing things, they are simply clarifying things, depends on how you look at it, but I look at it as a change. And they suggested using an OCR developed survey to determine interest on campus. The survey was developed without any professional on-campus type expertise um, and it is an e-survey, an electronic survey, and it can be faulted, I think, uh, justify, justifiably for a lot of reasons, one of which is that it is an e-survey and a non-response is considered as a demonstration of non-interest. Um, how many of you are students here? Anybody? Yeah. Do you answer every email from the college? Nope. Okay. Well, your non-answers would be considered non-interest. Uh, non uh, in addition to that, even if um, the survey demonstrated a superb interest and ability present on campus, there is no requirement for the school to do anything more than simply administer the survey. The act of administering the survey gives the school the get out of jail free card. It gives them the opportunity to say we have met this prong. It would require the students to be able to show by very persuasive evidence, persuasive evidence, that there was interest in ability. And that gets pretty hard for students to do. So I think that the OCR interest survey is a bad idea. Um, oops, did I push that the wrong way? Yep, no, oh, there we go. It's a, it's a bad idea of those two. Um, for a whole lot of reasons. If you look at it carefully and look at the supporting material for it carefully, you'll see that it's setting you up to not demonstrate interest. It is telling you how hard it is to be an athlete and it's taking time away from your school, so sort of why would you want to respond in a positive way? Anyway, interesting reading. The next one is history of upgrading the women's programs and if you haven't done that as an institution, that's pretty hard um, to use as one of the options. And the last one is proportionality. Proportionality. And um, that's basically saying that the ratio of male and female in your athletics program should 
mirror the ratio in the student body. Difficult to do, more difficult to do today than it was when this one was talked about originally because there, uh, there's a higher percentage of women in student bodies than there was way back when. Anyhow, moving onward, the next one is if you are on a team, in other words, if you are uh, supplying the participation opportunities, there are a whole lot of other things that also need to be equitable, and there's a good long list. All but one of these, the measurement out of that list, is benefit. The only one that you take a look at for dollar equality is in financial aid, and that's based on the ratio of male to female athletes. Everything else is benefit. So you're measuring by benefit. That means that if it costs $1,000 to outfit a football player, you're not required, not required, to spend $1,000 to outfit a tennis player. But you are, if you are outfitting a football player with a quality of uniform and replacing it at an appropriate amount of time, you need to be doing that same quality and replacement schedule for the tennis player's uniform. It would save you a whole lot more money on the tennis player's side. So it's not a dollar for dollar um, evaluation. It is simply a benefit uh, test. Okay? Now, besides the law, the regulations, the policy interpretations, letters of clarification, there's a whole bunch of case law. And there's a whole bunch of case law. And we're not going to go through them all. But I wanted to um, have you realize that they're there. They're hard to see. Let me point out a little bit about the last one. Jackson v. Birmingham. This was a coach of a high school girls basketball team. They played in a leaky gym with bad, bad facilities, rotten uniforms. I mean, it was a bad thing. He was also a physical education teacher. So the coaching job was just a couple thousand dollars extra for him. Um, he complained about the Title IX violations, and for his trouble, he got fired. And by himself, he took, without any help, he took the case to the Court of Appeals, losing all the way, but at least he um, went that far. And the retaliation claim, saying, I don't have any other claim personally belonging to me. It's not my uniform that's rotten. It's not my roof that's leaking but I am being retaliated against for um, complaining about Title IX issues for my girls. So the question became, if somebody uh, is in his situation, is there a private right of action? In other words, can he sue? Or is his only remedy to use an OCR complaint? Remember, the OCR complaints, if you win, the best that you're going to get is potentially the removal of federal dollars, not back pay, not your job reinstated, because OCR can't do that. Um, so for him, it would be a remedy without a real remedy. The Supreme Court voted four to um, five, five to four, um, that a private right of action does exist. And if you think about the ramifications on the other side, if the verdict had gone the other, or the decision had gone the other way, it would mean that if you spoke about Title IX to your kids just to educate them on history, um, you certainly stand a pretty good chance of losing your job and having no real um, remedy for that. Fortunately, the Jackson case went the right direction. There are other cases, 
And most of these are relating to uh, the problem of cutting and capping men's teams. And I want to speak both for myself and for Vivian to tell you that we think that cutting and capping men's teams is a rotten idea and demonstrates cowardice on the part of the administrators that do it. Um, if athletics belongs on campus, when it's good, it belongs on campus at least, um, it should belong on campus for both men and women and playing a numbers game to arrive at that proportionality prong by cutting opportunities just doesn't make sense. And yet it is done very, very frequently. Now, I don't know if your mom was the same as mine, but when there was one piece of cake left, my brother and I, one of us got to cut the cake in half, and the other one got to choose. Anybody? Yeah? Okay. Did you get good at cutting the cake perfectly in half? Yeah, me too. Down to the molecule. <laughs> okay, I think that's a, a good way of looking at how equity should be and put into words, um, words which originally came via NACWA, but which are now accepted by um, the NCAA. And that's hard to read, I think, but the last paragraph is the one that's important. An athletics program is gender equitable when the men's sports program would be pleased to accept as their own the overall participation, opportunities, and resources currently allocated to the women's sports program and vice versa. So the cake is cut evenly. And we're not talking about dollars, but the benefit of the cake. Now, that's the Title IX starter kit. So we're all on the same level. Let's talk about some of the impact of Title IX. Long before Title IX, women played, and they played intensely and with fervor. Um, no, that's not a picture of me someplace in there. <laughs> but um, I did play, and I played before Title IX. And my life and experience in athletics is very different than today's. I was on a number of varsity teams in every year. I could be varsity basketball, volleyball, softball, swimming. Believe it or not, I was on varsity gymnastics. Do I look like a gymnast? <laughs> nope. <laughs> um, but that's because the seasons were short, because nobody believed that a female could sustain more than six contests of basketball, six, or that sort of thing. But for me, as a mediocre athlete, it was wonderful, because the season was over before my mediocrity um, <laughs> demonstrated itself too swiftly. For Vivian, <clears throat> <laughs> I'll scoot down and be Vivian. She was a good athlete, and it limited her. She never had the opportunity to find out how good she could be. Um, I think I am glad that I was a pre-Title IX athlete. I think she probably wishes that she was a post-Title IX athlete. Anyhow, um, besides the change in the face of athletics for women, the numbers of participants uh, that Deborah alluded to have has really grown too. Um, back a couple years before Title IX started, 16,000 varsity athletes. But that's 16,000 more than a lot of people realize existed. Most people think it, that women's athletics was born from, from nothing um, once Title IX was enacted, and that's not quite true. And now there are 8,700 teams of female athletes in NCAA schools. 
And that's quite a growth. And if you look at the average number of teams per school, uh, that slide will give that to you. Also a pretty major growth. The um, greatest number of teams is in Division I, but what are those teams um, in all the different divisions? These are the most popular sports, most frequently found on campus. And if you'll take a look at the third one in the list, that's soccer. Soccer was found at institutions two out of a hundred when Title IX was enacted. And today it is the third most popular sport for women on college campus. That's a massive, amazing growth. The face of women's sport has changed in a lot of ways. There used to be a lot of junior varsities, which was a way of expanding the participation base, also of educating and training students. And those don't exist anymore. Okay. The next one <laughs> tells you the percentages, and you could recognize some people there on that team, uh, that uh, photo. Can you find Vivian? Well, you don't know what she looks like, so let's see if I can do that. That's Vivian. And I won't point out me, but you can kind of figure out me, tall people in the back. Um, anyhow, um, those are the participation uh, uh, percentages for the top 10 sports. Now, sports don't come, athletes don't come to college uh, just gaining when they walk in the doors their participation interests. The high schools are often the feeder systems, although not always. Certainly soccer is not a, uh, a feeder system for high schools, but it's important to know where the feeder systems are. And these are the top 10 sports for high schools. Um, the numbers in the parentheses tell you the ranking that those sports are in college. Um, the boxes on the bottom are not the latest data. Those are 2003 and 2004 um, data. Everything else is 2005, 2006. But um, those are to show you that there is an increase both of boys and girls. Title IX has not hurt. Um, the guys program, or at least hasn't stepped on it uh, terribly hard. Okay, now how about who's coaching the women? I'm going to drop this down here for a second. Um, whoops, change, there we go. Before and at the inception of Title IX, over 90% of coaches were women. They were typically, as Deborah alluded to, uh, physical educators who were doing this uh, for a thank you note at the end of the year. And today, um, about 42% are women. Now, let's take a look at the progress of women in the ranks of coaching men's teams. And the change over the years has not been particularly impressive. That's supposed to be funny. <laughs> it's sad, but funny. But what's important is to maybe take a look at the entire universe. If we only look at women coaching women's teams, we have by ourselves cut out a major segment of the job opportunities, and that's not a very smart thing to do. So if we do that, we see that, um, there we go, that it's 17% of the jobs, head coaching jobs of all sports, men's and women's teams, are um, headed by females. Um, the door has swung basically one direction in the coaching ranks. Some of that is the success of Title IX, 
because the menu of professional opportunities is much greater than it was when I was in school. You were going to be a teacher, a homemaker, office worker, nurse, and that was about it, unless you wanted to swim upstream against society. Um, so in some ways, a lot of the athletes that you might think would be coming to coach um, are not. Okay. I'm going to go through these slides real quick because they're hard to see. But basically, percentages have gone down for women coaching, but the absolute numbers have gone up because there are more women's teams. But in the going up, men have also increased their numbers as coaches of women's teams. So 71% of the increase in the number of women's teams over the last few years, those jobs have gone to men. Okay. Next. Okay. Your favorite sports, you can see the percentages look quick because I'm going to change it. I'm going to change. Assistant coaches, some think that that's a uh, way to get into coaching. Um, the number of females um, represented there has increased um, over the years, but so have the number of males um, in the assistant coaching positions. And now, who is hiring? Let's take a look at the bosses here. Um, less than one out of five of the athletic directors is a male, and there is something called homologous reproduction. We hire people that look like us, and that certainly is happening, and you can see that if you take a look at the data, that in programs that um, have a male athletic director, you have a higher percentage of males as coaches of women's teams than you do in programs that have a female athletic director. In fact, there's no female voice anywhere in 14% of women's programs. Now, if you remember that the average athletics department has over three people in it, um, that's a little shocking that so many have no female voice at all in, within the department, not even as an assistant to an assistant. Um, a quick look at the number of uh, administrative jobs and how many are held by women. Women, this is on any level, assistant, associate, uh, as well as AD. Only about a third are held by women. If you would like a full summary, it's um, 38 pages downloadable using your ink and your paper. <laughs> Um, it's available at the address there. It take, remember, it's not www. It's the H8, you know, that starter for it, if you'd like to do that. And I have now the third um, segment of this, which will be rather quick here, and that is tomorrow. Oh, do you, oops, go back to that. Some of you are still writing, right? Okay. If not, if you didn't get it all, let me know and I'll give it to you later. Okay, today's issue. See the gorilla in the room? Okay. Um, there are some gorillas in the room that those of us that go to Title IX conferences frequently, they're the same gorillas there. And maybe today at Stanford we can acknowledge the gorillas and move past the gorillas so that we can make some, some progress on this. Um, the gorillas, as I see them, are to actually deal with the bad decisions of administrators, college presidents, that cut and cap men's teams rather than 
um, realizing that there needs to be expanded participation for all male and female athletes who have the interest and the ability. Now I understand the logistical and financial problems of that, but administrators who have gotten into that problem are often there because they have not been making good decisions previously over the decades before. The dead horse syndrome is at all of these conferences we talk about the same stuff over and over again and we beat it to death and we don't make any progress. You look like a bright group of individuals. Don't they, Ted? You, yes. He wasn't, he wasn't laughing because he thought otherwise. <laughs> uh, um, that maybe we can get past the kicking the dead horse business. The target selection. Well, it depends on who you're talking to, what the target is. But let me give you a little story. There are some schools in the nation where there are not enough textbooks to go around in a class. How does the world or the principal decide who gets those textbooks? Does the principal decide whoever can hang on to them? Does the principal decide who they think might be most interested in what's inside the textbook? Do they think that the person should get the textbook if they could make the most money based on what they learned from the textbook? Or does the adult in the room actually decide how to increase the number of textbooks? I think that that really is our role and the only way we're going to get past the dead horse syndrome is to take a look at ways to um, realize that we all share the goal, I think, of having appropriate levels of participation for males as well as females who have the interest and the ability to participate. If there are benefits to be gained from athletic participation on campus, which is the only reason it should be on campus, then why in the world wouldn't you want the people that those opportunities are appropriate for to gain from that benefit? So let's find a way of having um, the real issue be talked about creatively here, which is to find a way to get more textbooks around. And once we do that, then we can take a look at who cares. In other words, finding the constituent bases, whether that's parents, uh, faculty, society at large, to make that um, happen. So that tomorrow there won't be a gorilla in the room. These are the ways to do it, I think, once we decide on uh, moving forward with the real issue. To educate, talk about it. Multiply and protect open view, open mind, and use the power. To educate, educate everybody. And there are a lot of organizations that are doing a good job at that. Um, Women's Sports Foundation, National Association for Girls and Women in Sport, NACWA, etc. So that you understand, and parents understand, and athletes understand what the options and obligations are. I think um, way back from the early 1900s, people have been talking about the mission and um, appropriateness of athletics on campus and wringing their hands about this is getting out of control, etc. So I'm not sure that in a one-day symposium we can do too much about that, but the um, Certainly a, a national dialogue needs to continue on that process. Salaries, um, 
on two levels, salaries need to be included in this dialogue. The outrageous salaries, I think they're outrageous, when coaches of premier teams are making multiple times more than the president of the institution. Um, there's something wacko <laughs> in our way of looking at sport. Also, salaries for the female coaches are lagging behind, and until they are unfettered in the marketplace, there will be fewer women applying for jobs, and thus that continues to be fewer women coaches. I don't know how many of you have applied for jobs very often, but I don't think it's anybody's funnest activity. And you're not going to do that if you're applying for a job that might give you a couple thousand dollars raise to move your family cross country, uh, move to a situation where you don't know off the bat who your friends and enemies are, etc. So you just don't bother applying. Antitrust issues, again, regarding capping some of the rather extensive salaries, expensive salaries. And taking a look not at cutting the numbers of participants on football teams, because if we are agreed that participation, broad-based participation for those with the interests and abilities is a good thing, you don't want to cut people, but perhaps cutting back on um, some of the scholarships and maybe more importantly, some of the... Um, benefits that come from uh, football participation, which maybe carry very little educational value, such as overnights in hotels the night before home games. Um, I think that state Title IX legislation, well done, is an appropriate um, task because you multiply the agencies that are engaged in equity issues. To also remember that high schools um, exist out there. It's not all about colleges. And to expand our focus beyond sport. Title IX covers all of education. It doesn't just cover sport. When I was in high school, um, I was denied entrance into the physics class because physics was not for girls. I happened to have a rather assertive, aggressive mother who um, got me into the class. But I, um, I know that's a lot of years ago. But Title IX has those kinds of impacts, too. Um, and we need to focus on those as well. Where lying, excuse me, where secrecy is, lying begins. And if budgets are not open and honest, um, Ted was talking about the EADA information, where you cannot get good information, then you have um, problems developing. People of goodwill can argue about where budgets are going, but hiding the budgets and the budgetary justifications is not a positive way to approach to e equity. Athletic programs need to re work at developing program-wide supporters instead of simply team supporters. Once you are a program-wide supporter, you understand the value of participation, not just loyalty to tennis or wrestling or swimming, a particular program. And to build alliances where they exist. Use the power to motivate interest among the women and the high schoolers, understanding the constituent base and realizing that this is a broad picture. It is not about counting whether it's teams or participants, which went up over what period of time the wrestlers went down and the women went up and that kind of thing, which 
regardless of the outcome and the agreement, if there ever is one, on that outcome, is not going to make any difference in increasing participation or in finding equity. So um, let me stop with that and invite you at any time to email us and ask any questions that you've got. And I'll turn the time back to Deborah. So um, miraculously, due to uh, extensive coaching and great participation from our panelists, we've left some time for um, questions while still staying on time, which is our goal. So um, can we open it up? And uh, Hashmet will come around to, the, to you with the mic so that we get the question on tape. Yes. Hi, I'm Wendy Hill with the National Organization for Women and I actually am the former legislative consultant to the California State Assembly Select Committee on Title IX. So I was a staff person who was responsible for coming up with much of the state Title IX legislation in the past several years here in California. And one of the things that we encountered when we would shop this legislation to the California Department of Education and the governor's office is the big funding question. Now, many of us agree that one of the big missing pieces of Title IX is enforcement, the enforcement arm. What sort of emerging policy messaging suggestions do you have for how, how do we move forward to get this to become a policy priority over some of the other things in Department of Education that are, that are currently policy priorities? Yeah, I'm so glad you're here, and thank you for all the hard work you've done on that issue. I, you know, I'm hoping that's a question you'll ask later this afternoon when, um, when we have Mr. Black from the Office of Civil Rights Enforcement here to talk specifically on that. But um, let me ask, you know, I have a, one or two thoughts on the politics of it, and maybe Ted and, and Linda do as well. Well, it, yeah. it settles down to money issues and where you're going to spend your dollars. Um, and, and that follows what you value. And if those who are making the budgetary decisions do not value equity, then the dollars don't get there. Um, and the dollars come from someplace else when they do come to equity. I think that's one of the things that we're seeing on the federal level now, obviously. Um, the dollars are going someplace else. And thus there is not the urging and the funding to enforce it administratively which is one of the reasons that the 1992 case that we talked about that allows um, punitive and compensatory damages um, carried such weight because it was an alternative way with very strong teeth, very sharp teeth, of enforcing Title IX. But you're talking about the administrative enforcement and that becomes a matter of education, it becomes a matter of um, mobilizing your constituent basis so that it becomes valued as something to be done, and thus the money follows what you value. You know, my, my own sense, it, having just written a book on some of the challenges facing higher education, is that the central difficulty is it's really easy to get on board with the principle, let's equalize up. Um, and, you know, capping is just the wrong way to go. But the practical reality for most institutions of higher education is one of stable or declining resources and escalating needs. 
And for many administrators, and it's true at the high school level, who are faced with very critical shortages of resources in multiple areas, it can be very hard to make the case for, you know, why athletic expenditures as opposed to, and then pick what you want to put on your list. Um, so uh, from their perspective, you know, when we look at the overall pie of um, higher education expenditures, why should athletics get a bigger share? And if it's not going to get a bigger share, then we're inevitably going to get to some trade-offs in how that single piece is carved up. And it's hard to make the case to some folks that um, male athletics should get some privileged position over the other needs, financial aid, scholarships, and, um, you know, uh, uh, health care costs and everything else that's ballooning for universities. My own sense of how you get out of that political uh, logjam and make the case for the increase in resources is to really talk um, more often, effectively, and visibly about the health benefits of Title IX and participation in athletics. And, you know, we haven't done that this morning, but the relevant um, facts show that individuals who have opportunities for athletic participation do better on every conceivable life dimension. And I know, you know, Ted probably has his elevator speech and stump speech on this. <laughs> I'll let him do it because he's better than I am. But you, you pick stress, substance uh, uh, abuse, um, uh, sort of uh, um, educational fulfillment. Um, athletics is really important. Uh, for all of that, and as Billie Jean King um, said last night, uh, it's one of those things that, that people need to think of as a lifestyle goal, and it's got to begin in early education and then being reinforced in high school and college. So I think somehow making the case, it's not just about giving women the opportunity to, to participate in competitively, but it's about giving opportunities for as many students uh, as possible to experience all the benefits that come from athletic um, involvement. And, which, and we, we, we need to pitch it, I think, in those broader terms. Which, let me uh, just add another sentence. To, uh, I'm agreeing with Deborah. The, the discussion of the mission of athletics becomes paramount then um, to that move forward to something to changing what we value um, that we really need to have an open discussion of how athletics fits into the educational mission not just of colleges but high schools too uh, ditto, <laughs> ditto. Good. okay hi I'm Anita de France from um, the amateur athletic foundation and I I don't know if it's worthwhile but um, is it possible to deactivate what I consider to be a perniciously evil, if there is such a thing, uh, survey? Is it just have to stay there? Is there a way to get rid of it? It dies if nobody uses it. And there are very few schools that are at least admitting to using it <laughs> at the moment. Very quickly, to the NCAA's credit, um, the NCAA came and told its membership um, to not use it. Obviously, they cannot enforce that, um, but I think that advice was very uh, very soothing to those of us that have actually read the details of it and you realize how awful a survey it is. Um, Miles Brand's wife is uh, in women's studies, I believe, and I think she might have had a good <laughs> hand in that, too, besides the, the Women's Committee of the NCAA, but it was very useful 
to have that advice. So if it's not used, obviously you need to have a way to figure out the interests and abilities of everybody, but that survey is not the way. It is rotten. Yes. Um, so we're talking about maybe um, that we need to create uh, a culture through uh, about women's sports uh, in our society and that definitely we need to portray the benefits, get it out there in the media. You're talking about how uh, we need to speak effectively and visibly. And uh, I've started a media company that is solely dedicated to being a voice for girls and athletes and, uh, and using uh, the media as a platform to show that sports is a model for life, especially for girls, and to promote all the benefits. And what I'm wondering is, as we're in here in this room today, is what can we do as leaders? I'm also a former college athlete and a college coach. And um, what can we do as leaders to support these efforts for uh, women like myself or anybody, even men, who would like to uh, promote uh, women athletes, coaches, administrators, the presence of girls and women in the media, uh, because I would like everybody here to endorse what I'm doing and to spread the word and to create more opportunities for this to happen. So I'm wondering, what can we all do here? Well, let's give people an opportunity to respond and also to contact you afterwards. So give out your, the name of your organization and how they would reach you. <laughs> Pens poised, everyone. Mine is. Uh, we're called Athletic Girl Productions, and we're, I'm located here in Menlo Park. And uh, currently, the website is uh, it's new, and we are getting a whole new design, uh, building content. But it's called uh, www.girlsarechampions.com or .org, and we're we're nonprofit pending. And uh, we want, our mission is to be a service to girls and women and to educate and empower women, uh, girls uh, through media projects with sports as a model. And, you know, I'm just, Lisa Izzy, I-Z-Z-I. -I. <laughs> one, one idea that's already been um, put forward is um, to be sure that at events like this, we have materials and links and email contact information because right in this room are a lot of the people who are making huge uh, difference on this issue. And so our website will stay up and we'll include all the contact information and, and hopefully we'll get other ideas during the course of the day of it, uh, along the lines you mentioned. How can we really um, get this uh, message out there? And part of the point of this symposium and the keynote address by someone who will bring that kind of national attention to this issue is to get people thinking about some of the harder questions um, and, and how, do we, how do we move the national debate. So I welcome all of your suggestions. You know how to reach me, Rhodey at Stanford. We have a website that will keep up on this um, conference and uh, Hashmit will also um, be available to give out more details and to take suggestions that people have. For, for moving the conversation. Uh, other questions? Anyone? Yeah, Mary Jo? No, <laughs> look behind you and you've got a mic. I, I, uh, my name's Mary Jo Kane and I'm a 
faculty member at the University of Minnesota and the director of something called the Tucker Center for Research on Girls and Women in Sport. And I was looking in the red bag because uh, our newsletter, there should be a copy of our, I'm doing a little self-promotion in response to your question. Um, our most recent newsletter uh, talks all about the whole issue of how female athletes are portrayed in the media. And the Tucker Center is in the midst of a groundbreaking uh, pilot study uh, doing the first ever audience reception research study in, we, in which we actually randomly present different kinds of images of female athletes that are out there in the media from athletic competence to uh, images of soft pornography and we're showing them at random to focus groups and I want to give a plug to the Women's Sports Foundation because the Women's Sports Foundation has generously stepped up to the plate to support the research that we're doing and uh, there's a uh, there's, uh, oh, thank you, thank you very much. Um, Audiovisual aid there. Yeah, exactly. And um, um, anyway, one of the things, the, the, one of the reasons that we wanted to do this research is um, there's, a, there's this whole narrative about how the, the best way to promote women's, uh, women's athletics is through a sex sells narrative. Of course, there's no data to support that, but hey, you know. But one of the very interesting that, things that we're finding uh, with these focus groups, and I shared this this morning with Donna, is that even when you take 18 to 34-year-old males, which is the prime uh, segment that marketers want, and you show them images of women in sexualized poses, and then you ask them to say, how much does this uh, increase your interest in wanting to watch women's sports, read about women's sports, buy a ticket to an event, or buy season tickets. What we found was that the young males were very interested in buying the magazine when Danica Patrick was, you know, uh, portrayed as a soft porn star. But what they were interested in consuming was not women's sports, but women's bodies as objects of sexual desire. So they may buy Sports Illustrated, but it does not translate into wanting to watch or go to a women's sporting event, or buy a season ticket. And at the same time, it's alienating the core base of women who are the fans, meaning young girls and women. They are offended by those images, and it's not at the same time drawing in men. So in fact, those kinds of images are counterproductive to what it is that the marketers want. So that's just a uh, semi-long-winded response and a plug for the Tucker Center and for the Women's Sports Foundation. Thank you. Thanks. Yes. Here in the center. Yes. Um, my name is Lynn Rudick, and uh, I guess if I can articulate uh, this question, I think mostly to you, Linda, and your uh, statistics, and uh, I haven't looked on your website. Um, when we, as a society, talk about civil rights and to some extent education, we are necessarily focused on opportunities. But when we talk about careers, and I think in many respects your statistics talked about careers, there's opportunity, but then there's also, if you will, the people who seek the opportunity pushing to come up. And I guess in my, in my day, I, I've seen more social change from, uh, which I will say, uh, started out with the free speech movement at Berkeley when I was a fresh young girl. <laughs> but I've seen more change uh, uh, when you get the pressure coming upward. So, a long-winded way to lead up to my question, which is you skipped very quickly over your information about financial, uh, the financial aspects of careers. It strikes me that 
the question, and I, and I don't do this kind of work professionally, but it strikes me that where there are more opportunity for high-paying jobs, where there are more career opportunities, uh, the focus on compliance might be uh, lessened or at least uh, uh, supported by the movement upward from the kids who really, really wanted to pursue these careers. So my question is, can you uh, respond to that, and, and to what extent do the statistics that you jumped over support that? Um, when I was coaching, I coached for a thank you note at the end of the year. Um, way back, hmm, I guess maybe 14 years ago, Vivian and I did a study um, that asked women that had been at their institutions 10 years or more why they stayed and why they didn't apply for other jobs. And the answers about why they stayed related to their commitment to their students. If you asked what it would take to make you move, it was salary, increased money. And I don't think that that, even though it's an old study, I don't think that that um, has lost at least a, a part of uh, its value um, in today's world. Um, if a an athletic director, and 85% of them are males, um, is looking for um, a new coach for his women's basketball team. He will lament the fact that he gets very few applicants from women. If he's looking for a new coach for his men's basketball team, he will often find out who the best male is and what it will take to bring him on campus. If that's um, golf club membership, uh, family car, low mortgage, you know, low interest mortgage, whatever. and. And so the, re the recruitment value or the recruitment impact on the salaries is very different because of the probably even unrealized um, point of view in the athletic director that the, male, the coach for the male's basketball team is much more important higher than the coach for the women's team. And if the recruitment isn't the same out there, then the salaries don't go up. And I think without the salaries going up, um, your point about um, there not being that push <laughs> into that field is going to continue. And women um, athletes, because that's where most of the coaches come from now, um, unlike in the old days when they came from the ranks of physical educators, uh, they're going to look elsewhere because they now have options that are available to them with higher salaries and the same or less hassle. And coaching just doesn't appeal to them. There are um, some um, pro programs that have tried to encourage kids to at least look at coaching as a career option and taste that joy that makes you coach for a thank you note um, so that it's not based on salary. And I think we need to do more of that and we need to start much earlier. We need to be in the career days at high schools. Um, we need to um, have um, Girl Scout troops spend overnights in our gymnasiums for a basketball clinic run by our own athletes so that our own athletes get that taste of what joy there is to coaching. And then they can fight the battles for the salaries themselves too. Great. Well, I think we probably ought to stop there so that people have time for a break before the next panel. But join me in thanking our panelists for getting us off to a wonderful start.
The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.